Welcome to the Pest Web Podcast, where we talk about the products and strategies pest control professionals are using to earn customers and grow. Each episode, we sit down with industry experts to bring you business tips, market trends, and technical information you can use. It's a fresh perspective on what it takes to succeed in pest control. The Perimeter Pro program offers tools to help you create a winning playbook for bi-monthly and quarterly perimeter treatments. Visit pestcontrol.basf.us to register and to view the program's most recent webinar on effective mosquito and ant treatments that eliminate callbacks. Welcome to this episode of the Pest Web Podcast. I'm Erin Montagudo. I am the Technical Content and Training Specialist with Viserys. And today we have with us Dr. Bob Davis from BASF. He is a Technical Services Representative um, covering, I know, South Central U.S., definitely Texas. Uh, what other areas do you cover? Yeah, thanks, Erin, and uh, welcome to everybody. But yeah, I've been based out of Texas and I work all, all the uh, states that touch Texas and I actually go all the way to Canada from here so but in this day and age of COVID I'm not traveling that much right now. <laughs> so basically straight up the center of, of the United States into Canada. Yeah that's correct. Okay so I've invited Dr. Bob with us today to talk about the conference you may never have heard of or maybe have seen the initials for it and I really understood what was going on but I wanted to talk with you about the National Conference on Urban Entomology, or NCUE, and just had a virtual um, version of it last week because it was originally supposed to be held last year in Mobile, and it got canceled because of COVID. So we had a chance to have it virtually because there's a lot of student papers and awards that happen along with this conference as well. We wanted an opportunity to have those student their work get you know heard and win those awards but this conference actually dates back to what i was looking in the research to 1986 correct yeah that's correct um uh pat singoli and, and quite a few of the the folks at that time in 1986 started the first conference and uh, the goal of the conference really was to focus on urban entomology and, you know, there's some really good associations out there, the Entomological Society of America and others, too. But they don't focus on urban per se. And, and a lot of uh, folks in our industry back in the 80s felt like we needed this identity, you know, to kind of focus on urban entomology. So it started in College Park, Maryland, and the first four conferences were actually held there. Um, they After that time, they decided to travel the conference. And that's why now it'll, it usually goes like West Coast, East Coast, Central, uh, sometimes Northern Tier. And they travel around the country to give various uh, regions a chance where they could actually be closer to it. So that's been happening since, like you said, 1986. Yes. And the first time that I went to the conference was in 2006. Um, and the first time I went there, I was like, this is amazing because it is. And the word that everybody was using um, the last week to describe it was it's intimate. The whole goal of the conference is to have a setting for where, you know, academics and people in the industry and people that work in the government, um, the regulators can get together and hear about what's going on in academia, what science is being studied and what's going to be published. And 
I mean, what would you say is normally the attendance for NCUE? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's usually at least 200 and sometimes it's uh, over three. Um, and, and a number of things have impacted that. I mean, certainly locale uh, when you're in a region where you're close to some universities and a lot of urban entomology type people, you get a little bit more attendance. But also um, about, I guess it was what, 2016, uh, the invasive pest ants or the uh, conference decided to join with us. And that brought in another cadre of, of group of, of folks that really focus on urban entomology. So it used to be the Red Imported Fire Ant Conference and all that, but, that, but it entails all invasive pest ants now. And that, that increased our membership uh, also. Yeah, and so if you compare this conference with something like Pest World, right? where you will see, you will hear, you know, some research that's going on. Um, but then, you you know, if you go and you listen to the talk and you might get, you might be able to talk to that researcher for about the 10 minutes they have afterwards, if you're not in the long line of people wanting to talk to them and then trying to find them later in this big, massive conference, you know, that's can be difficult. And um, this, this, this is why I think this conference is so important because Number one, you kind of get to hear about what's going on a little bit faster than maybe when it gets to, you know, press world. But you also can ask questions and find that researcher and, and have a conversation, a discussion with them about, you know, what, the, what their work and how it might affect um, the industry and what you're interested in. You know, how would it, affect, it, it inf- impact your business? Um, so I really hope that more PMPs um, are aware of this conference so that they're you know, maybe they don't have a technical team that can go because obviously the technical um, staff that works with pest management, they're aware of this conference and they're going to you know be there. But even if you can't go to be aware that the NCUE has this website where they publish their proceedings, where you can just read the abstracts of the work that's going on and get and be really be more involved in what's going on on the science side of things. I really like your word intimate. I mean, and I agree with that too, because I attend lots of meetings and, and you're right. This is one that's very much intimate because it's us, it's urban entomologists. And we have, you know, very informal get togethers at the, in the evenings, you know, at a pizza place or a brewery or whatever it might be. And everybody can visit and talk. And you're exactly right. You can visit with uh, the folks who are giving the presentations. You can visit with, you know, icons in our industry and people that have been doing research for their whole career or whatever it is. But the other thing is, you know, you get to see the talent, the new people that are joining our industry, too. And if you're a manager or you have a tech team out there, you got a company and you're looking for a new technical person that's going to help you. You can see some of these fantastic students and folks that are getting their training that are coming out. And, you know, hey, I want to go visit that person, you know, because they could help us in the future and and, and maybe have a relationship built that way. Um, Aaron, can I add just one more thing, too? Sure. the other thing that the Urban the National Conference of Urban Entomology has really done, and you've, you've mentioned this a little bit, is the last you know ten to fifteen conferences they had do, and 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 the conference happens every other year for the most part, right? It, so it's like every two years, but they provide a lot of resources for students, and and there's uh, fantastic opportunities. And if you're a student out there listening to this, please look into do uh, competing for these awards. You know, they have a, a, a master's student award, a bachelor's student award, as well as a PhD student award that you submit ahead of time 
your credentials and your work and the things you do. And if you get selected, it's like $1,500 plus you get the registration for the meeting free and then you come present at the meeting, right? So, and it's a fantastic resume builder, but it's some serious cash and payment to get you there. And um, now not this year because it's virtual, but normally we have 10 travel awards. And again, it, it, you put in your uh, apply for the travel awards. You talk about the paper you'd like to give or the presentation you'd like to give as a student, little 10 minute talk. And then if you're selected, you're going to get a $300 check and the registration paid again, you know, free registration. Uh, so we have some really wonderful opportunities for these awards that, that are really pretty good, pretty good awards. So supporting the students is a, is a very important thing that the NCOE conference does. Yeah. And usually, the one is in person, it tends to be like the first day is dedicated for the students to get all of their their, their work presented. Um, and and then afterward, the, day, the second or third day after that, it's then it's more of the of their bosses and, and the professors, you know, presenting their work. But usually the first day of the conference, if I remember correctly, is this is all the student work that's coming that's coming out. And that's true because the other set of awards that are given are actual student paper competitions where the, the students present at the meeting and they're competing for the, the first, second, and third awards. So they have to be judged and compiled and ready for the award ceremony, right, at lunch or, or whatever we have it. So, yeah, the first day, it, it's all about the students and, and the great new work that they're doing. So it's a lot of fun. And so this virtual um, version that we had last week was – focused on a lot on the students. There were 13 presentations and I picked four just to kind of get an idea of somebody can get an idea of the work that's coming out and that especially affects the industry. And the first one was from Marlo Black, University of Tennessee, and she was the undergraduate award winner. And it was very interesting because I know that as a PMP working with bedbugs, I get asked this question a lot, is her work was um, basically answers the question of do bed bugs feed on dogs and cats? <laughs> and her work was specifically on low income high rises for elderly and disabled. But based on her work, we kind of have an answer um, that no, they don't. The, the, they, the bed bugs were frequently feeding on humans and rarely feeding on dogs and cats. And the possibility was maybe to, you know, due to pet grooming, which I think it has a lot to do with pet grooming, especially cats because cats are fantastic groomers and you know, the shapes of bed bugs just aren't really made like fleas to get through the hair and, and stick on the animal. Um, but also probably due to anaparasitics that they're being prescribed. And that might be a reason why they're not finding a lot of the DNA and in, in the DNA in blood meals in bed bugs coming from dogs and cats, but vast majority um, were feeding on bed bugs and not pets. Yeah, really, really great comments, and, and I really enjoyed Marlo's presentation. And and, you, and I want to focus on a couple of things. Number one, she's an undergraduate, right? Mm -hmm. This was fantastic molecular work that she was doing with these bed bugs. And she's, like you said, uh, based at the University of Tennessee, so she's with Dr. Vale's group and uh, uh, Dr. Rebecca Trout, uh, Frixell, and, and that group. So they have a really good program there at the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology in Tennessee and Knoxville. Yeah, and you're right. Her, her objective was, hey, we want to find out, can and dogs and cats, can they be a, a, a host, a resource for bed bugs to keep these populations going, even if there's no people around or whatever? 
And and she found out it's extremely rare. Did she did she say a hundred percent of the time we never had a bed bug feed on dog or cat? The answer was no. And she actually did it by looking at the DNA within the bed bug. So they would look for cat or dog or even mouse or rat DNA within the bed bug and and look at molecularly to find out if they fed upon uh, those animals in their blood feeding. And she found out, like you said, extremely rare, right? And, And I think what you said about all the characteristics of the animals, the behaviors, the fur, all that, I think it makes it very, very difficult for feeding. On animal treatments, does that help? It probably does. But, you know, we have enough feral cats and dogs out there. We would have bed bug problems if, if they could feed on them readily. So yeah. I, I agree with you on the behavior part. But it's really fantastic information she had for us. Yes. And it's nice to have a scientific answer instead of whenever you, you get asked that question by your customer, like, I don't think so. You can say, well, there was a study that was just done that, you know, on that. And they're showing that it's, it's pretty rare. So it's nice to have some scientific backing for our answers that we give customers. You know, and she uh, she got fifteen hundred dollars for the award for that paper. That that's that's a fantastic job she did. Yes. The second one I wanted to talk about was uh, Carrie Lewis, University of Tulsa. She was second place in the student paper competition, and this was again on another study on bed bugs. And she was comparing the uh, genetics of bed bugs from now to bed bugs from 10 years ago and wanting to see, okay, well, you know, what is, what is, what is resistance looking like in these populations 10 years apart? And it was interesting because she was testing for two types of target site resistance, which is um, sometimes the, the product gets to the target site and the target site just doesn't work. It's become insensitive to it. Or well, what she found was a significant decrease in susceptible populations, which means populations of bed bugs that have just are susceptible to anything. And also a significant decrease in bed bugs that had one form of target site resistance. And so conversely, there was a significant increase in populations with both mutations of target site resistance. So I think that's really interesting. I think that's coming to show that um, you're getting, we're getting more and more bed bugs that are having um, combined levels of resistance, of target site resistance. And the caveat is she has to do a study to say, okay, well, were these bed bugs present before um, we started using these products? Or is this something that has come, has evolved since we're using these products? So she still has more work to do, but definitely showing that, yeah, we're showing a significant decrease in, susceptible populations and getting an increase of populations that have both um, target site uh, resistance. Yeah, it really was a great paper. And, and Ms. Lewis, like I said, University of Tulsa out of Warren Booth's lab. And, and and we don't think about University of Tulsa being this, you know, great urban entomology program. But I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Booth has built a really nice program up there in the Department of Biological Sciences based on bed bugs, especially. And, and, what I really liked about what Carrie did was that she took a baseline of information we have from 10 years ago, where we did all this work across the country. We collected these bed bug populations. And we said, this is the resistance that we're seeing. And we did see resistance across the country, right? And, and the resistance, as you talked about, was to the pyrethroid chemistries, the pyrethroid chemistries. It was that knockdown resistance, KDR resistance, where it just makes it difficult for the pyrethroid to bind at the site, right? Because of uh, the binding is very difficult to do. And then also it can, the, the second form is that the enzymes can break it down. So they don't work very well. Right. So that's the other form. And she found out from 10 years later, collecting more populations that, as you said, resistance is increasing. 
uh, to these chemistries across the country. Are there still populations where they're susceptible? Sure, but there's more populations uh, across the board where we're seeing resistance that's occurring. So really a great paper. She got uh, a really nice award, $750, second place in the student paper competition and, and did a really good job. The, that leads us to the next student, um, Maria Gonzalez Morales, uh, North Carolina State University. She uh, won first place in the student paper competition and her study was resistance to fipronil and bedbugs, um, which is interesting. Because I think a lot of us might say, okay, well, that's interesting because I don't think there's any products that are labeled for, uh, Fipronil products that are labeled for use in, for bed bugs or even where bed bugs exist. And um, so there's like, well, let's, let's think about this. Maybe why are we seeing resistance to Fipronil and bed bugs? Is it cross resistance to older products um, that were used decades ago, like Dialdrin? Is it the ectoparasitic products? Because those definitely are where we are seeing fipronil use indoors are on the um, parasitic products that we planted better than me. It's basically, um, it appears to be that pyrethroid resistance can confer fipronil resistance based on the metabolic pathway. So basically, whatever we use synergists for in bed bugs, it, it helps um, block that metabolic breakdown. And it looks like it's not because Fipronil is being used against bed bugs in a way it's not supposed to be. It's, hey, it's just one particular pathway um, that tends to, that we see in pyrethroids can also be working against fipronil, even though it's not being used against bed bugs. Yeah, yeah. Good comments. And Maria Gonzalez Morales, she's out of North Carolina State University with the Colby Shaw's lab. And they've got a really great program. If you're familiar with urban entomology, it's their top notch, right? And they have developed. Uh, insecticide resistance screening programs for cockroaches, for uh, <clears throat> bed bugs, for mosquitoes, you know, different types of things too. And and she's taken this, this technology and these, um, these systems to look at bed bugs. And she wanted to look at fipronil. So why are you looking at fipronil? Well, think about the last talk we just talked about, right? We know that there's widespread resistance around the world to pyrethroids, to pyrethrins, now to organophosphates, carbamates, and even starting up the neonicotinoids. So what, what they're basically saying is we have to look at other classes of chemistry that might help us on a rotational basis. Well, fipronil is another class of chemistry, right? It's a whole different class. So it, it makes sense to look at it as an option. And one thing they found was pretty fascinating, and Dr. Shaw had seen this in some of the early work, is if you could develop a way they can ingest it you know, uh, maybe a bait or something like that. Uh, maybe that's a way that the fipronil can target to the animal. And they found out that ingestion actually works really well with the bed bugs with the fipronil. But you're right. What, what she found was that the knockdown resistance we talked about with pyrethroids is providing also some resistance against the fipronil. And, and, and she classically showed it by th there's compounds that you can use in science that, that will actually uh, uh, to make it harder for the enzymes to to actually uh, knock down the resistance, right? So she added those products to show that when those were with the fipronil, the fipronil worked very, very well. But when you took those products away and you didn't let those products knock down the, the, the pyrethroid uh, knockdown enzymes, then the fipronil didn't work very well. So, and, and that's that cross resistance with the pyrethroids that we're talking about. So there, there's a lot going on, but it's right there at that target site with that, and they call it knockdown resistance. And she classically showed that, hey, you know, uh, there's, some, there's some very similar mechanisms in place for protecting 
the animals against fipronil, just like they would with the pyrethroids. Um, I think and the other thing you said is, you know, why? I mean, why would that be happening? Again, I think it is some cross resistance that's going on. Um, the on-animal treatments could be part of it. But, you know, again, we just had a paper below that say, well, we don't feed on the animals that much. So um, it, it's interesting to see why is it, why is it occurring. I think it's some cross resistance. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's good to be staying up to date on these things because I think I think the peak, the mass, the big height, you know, I was in New York in 2010. That kind of was the peak of everybody going crazy about bed bugs. I think a lot of PMPs have gotten a handle on bed bugs. Like they feel like, okay, I got this. We've got enough. Our learning curve is good. You know, we've, you always have to be aware of what's going to go on though. Um, in the next few years, you might be good right now. Um, and you might be really thorough, but always in the back of our heads, these products aren't going to last us forever and just be aware of, you know, that it is building. And with insects that reproduce so quickly, you know, bed bugs are pretty quick, you know, not as quick as flies, but you know, on their on par with German cockroaches, they're always knocking on your door, basically, of, of resistance because they, they, um, they reproduce so fast and we're not always so thorough with our products. And we need to make sure that whatever products we're using, we're being as thorough as possible because they're basically knocking on the back door saying, you know, you might not be doing it on purpose. You might not be putting pressure on us with Fipronil, but nature has a way of taking care of it on its own, <laughs> basically. Right. Yeah, and, and, and we're talking about bed bugs now, which is really important because... We, we need to have rotational strategies. We use to we need to use cultural and sanitation techniques. We need to do the whole package because resistance is happening and it's evolving. I mean, that's what we've shown with these papers that, that these uh, individuals gave. You know, in, in this, she looked at nine different populations she collected from the field and compared it to what we call the Harold Harlan strain, which is uh, the susceptible strain, the lab strain we've had in culture for decades. Um, and that's the comparison. And she found, you know, a couple of them that really weren't resistant. I mean, when I, when I went to grad school, you know, I won't even say what, who was president back then, but, you know, uh, it was a long time ago, right? But but when I went to grad school, if, if the resistance ratio was 10 or less, it really wasn't resistant. But if you were 10 or more, yeah, you had resistance, right? And she had some of those populations that were less than 10, which means, hey, they're, they're pretty susceptible to the treatment. But then she had a couple of them that were approaching about 1,000, right? So... So that tells you, but even, but the, the doses, I mean, she was, you know, at the susceptible ones, like 10 to 15 nanograms per insect was, was killing the insect. So it shows you when they're susceptible, it, it works very well. <laughs> I definitely want to get to this last one and uh, the four that I picked. And this one was Richard Murphy out of Auburn University, a video analysis of a reticular termite flavipedes colony, which is Eastern subterranean termite exposed to Trelona termitocide bait. Yeah, that was, it was a really good paper. And it's actually one that we at BSF were, we're actually sponsoring the project with them to, so they can find out some information as to how it works. Right. And a couple things about it. I mean, you, you said it, Eastern subterranean termites. So very common termite that across the entire U S or most of the U S and also they looked at colonies, right? So a lot of times when we do lab studies or tests, you know, they'll take 200 termites, put them in a petri dish, and, you know, it's not really a colony. It's, it's just a bunch of termites. And, and we can get some good information, but it's not the same thing. So he was putting five to 6,000 individuals into a setup, 
you know, a terrarium type of thing with a nesting and food and water and soil. And then he let them live there until they were actually producing eggs. So they're reproducing. So now this is a functional active colony that's in place. And then he took the Trelona termite bait and he actually put a little dye in it, a little blue dye. And it's a, it's a, it's a fat soluble dye that when the termite eats, eats it, it actually gets inside their body. So you can see them as they're moved. So you can see which one's fed upon the bait, right? And then you can see them transfer it to some of the others, which is pretty fascinating. So uh, the bait was put in there and then he looked at the, the, the behaviors they would have over that time and how that impacted tunneling and then finally calling elimination. So I know you saw some of the videos. What'd you think of those? I think it's great. And I think it's, and I'm from back in the day where you would have a few members of a colony that were picked up in the field and you had them, you know, in the lab and you weren't doing a full test on, on colonies. So that's a great distinction there an explanation of how he can define what he was working with as a colony. But I also noticed that he they, they saw the workers taking physical bait particles and taking them back to the rest of the colony. So a lot of times when we think of baits and ground baits for termites, we think of, oh, they went into the bait station, they, they touched it, they ate it, they transferred it back um, internally or on their bodies to their, their colony. But no, they're actually seeing, no, they actually will take physical particles and take it back to the colony as well. Yeah, and I think as well as the key, all the above was happening. Yes. <laughs> right? so we, we even saw the video where we were watching the, the piece of the bait particle being in the in mandibles of the forager and taking it back to the nesting site, right? So mm-hmm. pretty fascinating. But we also saw grooming. We saw groups and individuals doing cannibalism of those that died because they had the bait inside them, and now they were transferring it through the cannibalism uh, to the other one. Uh, we saw uh, trophallaxis, which you were like sharing of resources, and we saw two different types. We saw it stomach to stomach, where you're like feeding somebody else, right? We also saw it, you know, uh, mouth parts to rear in, proctodial, right? Proctodial trophallaxis, which helps transfer a lot of the, the bacteria and the protozoan. So, but also transfers the chitin synthesis inhibitors in the bait. Um, and, and then he, at the very end, uh, you'll probably remember this. He measured termites moving in a tunnel and how often they were crossing a tunneling path from the time the bait was put in until like three weeks later. And he showed how the tunneling and the activity within the tunnels decreased as the bait was having an impact on the colony and to the point where basically the colony collapsed and it was less than 1% that were alive at that point. And I think he was 20, I know it's 21 days. Yeah, it was, it was pretty quick, but in a terrarium, you know. The other thing I thought was really neat about that study, um, yeah, I get pretty excited about this, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he showed that when a termites found it, it took about nine hours for them to kind of find it in the beginning when the bait was first put in the, the arena uh, where the colony was. So they were tunneling, looking around, and they found it. And then once they found it, a termite picked up some of the food, took it back to the nest, and then more termites started aggregating there. So there was a signal that went out within the colony and said, this is a good food source. Come over here. Because they had other food sources there. They had they had pine wood. They had other things to feed upon. They were not aggregating on those. They were aggregating on the bait. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really, really neat, too. It's maybe something was, something was more attractive or something was... 
making them find it more interesting. More palatable, better food source, you know. Yes. I mean, mean, termites don't make decisions, but right, they had, there was a focus on that food source, so. Yes, that's good. That's, That's interesting. That was the last of the student ones that I picked out. And and then there, there the next day, there was a talk by Dr. Ed Bargo, who is out of Texas A&M University here in Texas in College Station. And I, anytime Dr. Bargo talks, I listen because he's fascinating. Um, the work that he does with genes, with um, molecular ecology is how he explains it. And I'm going to geek out a little bit as to something that he had that was interesting. You might find this interesting too, because you do a lot of work with termites, but the discovery, he wasn't saying this was his work, but I think he was partnering with another scientist in this work, but basically um, that they have found that there is something called asexual queen succession in some termites, which is where queens produce replacement queens by parthenogenesis, or basically they produce they can lay eggs without um, having them being... Um, yeah, you don't need sexual reproduction. It's asexual, so they don't need the male. They just lay these eggs, and they're, and they're, they're not done with um, any of the male sperm. So basically, asexual queen succession is when queens produce replacement queens by parthenogenesis, and then those queens mate with the king, and the queen dies. And then the king lives indefinitely throughout with the rest of the colony, and he's not mating with his daughters. He's mating with half-clones of the queen, so there's no inbreeding. And that kind of blew my mind as an entomologist. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it might not directly impact the industry per se right now, but it's still really interesting. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. And I'll back up just one step. So at the conference, um, in fact, in the second conference that we had in 1988, um, Arnold Malice was recognized at that conference. It was basically done in his honor. And we all know about malice, the handbook of pest control and all that. And, and, and his, uh, you know, his support of urban entomology has been key for, for the growth of our, in, uh, of, of, our, of our discipline, right? So ever since that conference, we've had an Arnold Malice lecturer. And that's what Dr. Bargo did. He was the invited speaker to provide the Arnold Malice lecture. So it, it, and we do this every conference. So it's always somebody like Dr. Bargo. It could be a Dr. Gold. It could be Dr. Sue, you know, uh, uh, individuals that are just, you know, uh, key to our industry that are honored to give this, this lecture. And so Dr. Bargo gave this one and, and you're right. This, 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 uh, this new way of looking at how termite colonies can keep functional, even when they have some reproductives that, that pass away, you don't have a king available, whatever it is, and they need to create more reproductives to help the colonies sustain themselves. And they do it in a way they're not inbreeding, so they're not hurting their own fitness of the colony. It's really fascinating. And, and, I, th- and I think what it does is it shows how successful these animals are. I mean, we already know their colony is very flexible, if you will, you know, these, these workers can molt into what's needed, soldiers into reproductives or secondary reproductives or third tertiary reproductives or whatever's needed, uh, depending on the environment they're in. Well, that helps keep the species going over time. And, you know, they've been around for a couple hundred million years developing these systems. And over that time, lots of other animals have gone extinct. But yet this is another way in which the termites are actually staying, you know, very fit and keeping in their habitats, but it also means as pest management professionals that these termites are going to be very good at providing pressure on the properties you have under account. So 
the message I get from this also is that, yeah, I might have traded Mr. and Mrs. Jones' house last year, but they need me from now on because there's more termites coming at that property over time because they're very successful at what they do. And so they're going to do this testing in more species, but they, they, they have found it in, I think the one that they studied was Reticulatermis sporatus, um, but they have found it in Virginicus, which you can find here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, these are just the kind of things that we would never know if it wasn't for the genetic testing that's, that has, that's becoming easier and easier to do. And, and not just in termites, but, he, you know, his research is also in, in bed bugs and ants. And there's all these questions being answered by the genetic studies that are being done now um, in urban entomology. Yeah, 100% agree. And his work, you know, originally when molecular genetics got really important with insects, it was because molecular geneticists were using insects as the model to learn how to do genetics, right? But now, no, we're taking molecular genetics to learn about the insects. And I think that's really fascinating. And, and this, and especially social insects, because social insects are just a different ballgame than the non-social insects. Yes. And so I... Um I think I'm going to end this here and, you know, I hope anybody listening, um, this piques your interest on what NCUE is. If you've seen emails on NCUE and, you know, what is it? It's the National Conference on Urban Entomology. It's usually every two years. The next um, conference will be in next year in Salt Lake City, Utah, and their website is ncue.tamu. Edu, TAMU stands for Texas A&M University. And can you explain the relationship between NCUE and Texas A&M? Yeah, I certainly can. Um, actually, uh, there, there was a very strong need for a treasurer and an administrative help to keep the conference going through the years as it got bigger and more successful. And Dr. Gold at the time stepped up and said, we'll take it, we'll, we'll help out, we'll help with the conference. And they host the website. And Lisa Jordan, who now works with Ed, of course, they serve as treasurer. And, and they keep the archives and all that kind of stuff going. So it's really been a very nice thing that A&M's done to help with the conference. Yes. So, you know, definitely be aware that this conference, you know, is, is around, um, you know, it's good to support the students. It's good to support the professors, the work, all of this work that eventually ends up affecting our industry. We need this research to keep going so that we can still have, um, so we can understand the pests we deal with and treat them, you know, better as well. And um, if you don't have a technical staff that is available to go to these conferences every two years, you can always go to that website that we talked about, ncue.tamu.edu, and see the proceedings. I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the proceedings from last week's conference will be up on the website like the other proceedings are. Yes, it will be a little later this summer. Allie's working on it. Uh, they should on the next six to eight weeks. Yeah. Um, because even if you're not inclined to read in, you know, a, 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 a paper, um, the abstracts are there and it's all nice in one tight place instead of having to kind of fish for them in different places. But definitely keep you know yourself up to date and keep yourself posted on the research that's going on. Um, and definitely a conference that I think, you know, more of the industry should should be behind and be aware of. For sure. And so I just want to add before you go is thank you to Viserys for being a sponsor, because the other thing about the conference, I uh, rely a lot upon industry and other outside sponsorships to help with these student awards and everything else. And Viserys is very kind in doing that. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And 
to note also that BASF is a sponsor as well. And I think you go way back into helping with this conference. I think all the way back to 2004. Yeah, we, we, we've been very supportive of it, but uh, it, it's a great one. It's a good one. And you mentioned next year, Salt Lake City, and then two years after that, we'll be in Mobile, uh, Alabama. So we got those two set up. Yes, we got the next four years covered. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Bob. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the PestWeb Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then head over to iTunes, Spotify, or any other major podcast platform. Write us a review and subscribe today. And don't forget to share this podcast with other pest control professionals. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.